0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or.
1: Go to
0: your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Sponsored by Raytheon
1: with the new museum, what we do is focus first one whole floor on how you spy. That's the tactics, the techniques, the procedures, the tradecraft, the gadgetry of espionage. And that's exciting. But the next floor will be why you spy. And then we get into some of the moral dimensions of espionage, reinforced by artifacts and immersive experiences. I really like the fact that we have a tool that was used for assassination against Trotsky, where the Soviets dispatched assassins to kill him, and he was killed quite brutally. As gruesome as it sounds, it's an important part of history. And when you compare it and you contextualize what's happening currently, attempted poisonings in the U.K. by Russian intelligence... It kind of never ends, right? It, it, it just doesn't just, it end, just right? It goes on and on.
0: Chris, so you're not only a former intelligence officer, you're also a bit of a, I wouldn't say a bit of, you're a counterterrorism expert. So when you were at the NSC, you worked on President Trump's counterterrorism strategy. What was that process like?
1: What I tried to do is, is to incessantly protect our guys from politicization, to make sure I was well informed by intelligence. Despite worries of politicization, I will tell you that our team built a framework for an excellent counterterrorism strategy, and it wasn't finished while I was there. Now, I wanted it done while I was there, but in the end, it was a better product because the debates continued. And frankly, I believe it's the best strategy the nation's ever had for counterterrorism.
0: Chris Costa is the executive director of the International Spy Museum and a former career intelligence officer. Prior to joining the Spy Museum, Chris served as a special assistant to the president and senior director for counterterrorism on the National Security Council staff. He also served at the Special Operations Command and at the Naval Special Warfare Development Group. I just had a chance to sit down with Chris to discuss some exciting new developments at the Spy Museum. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. For over 50 years, Raytheon engineers have shaped tomorrow's world from space. From next-gen imaging to breakthrough missile warning systems, Raytheon is putting ideas in orbit to make the world a safer place. Chris, welcome to the show. It is great to have you on Intelligence Matters.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: So the Spy Museum has some very exciting news to share. You've closed the original museum, and you're reopening a new facility in just a few days, May 12th, I think, right? That's exactly right. Where is the new location?
1: It's in L'Enfant Plaza, which uh, overlooks the wharf area. And on the other side of the museum, we can actually see the mall. So it's in a terrific spot right at L'Enfant Plaza.
0: Kind of museum, kind of central. That's exactly right. Chris, before we talk about the new museum in detail, perhaps you could give us a quick history of the original museum. When was it first opened? Who was the driving force behind that? And what kind of
1: success did you have? So the museum opened up 17 years ago. So that would have been in 2002. It's when the museum actually opened. And the founder was an individual by the name of Milton Maltz, and he's our founder uh, for the current museum as well. It was his vision to open to the public, what otherwise wouldn't have been open to the public. Give them glimpses of a shadowy world. And Mr. Maltz uh, not only has been a successful businessman, but he also operated in radio. So he had a sense for not only entertainment, but the importance of informing the public.
0: Where did he get his interest in
1: intelligence from? That's a great question. A stint in the National Security Agency in the 1950s, and that planted the seed for him. And he's passionate about this business and he recognized there was a a gap and that gap was no one else was opening to the public the stories that we tell at the where do you Spy get your Museum. artifacts from so we get our artifacts from across the globe but we have one uh particular uh collector and his name is keith melton h keith melton he's been a private collector and he turned over the vast majority of his uh, his artifacts to us in the last couple of years. So we have in excess of 7,000 artifacts. But it's painstaking work to collect these artifacts from across the globe.
0: I think actually some of the artifacts at CIA, at the museum there, actually belong to him as that, well.
1: That's exactly right. That is true. Yeah.
0: So what does the word international mean
1: in International Spy Museum? So the story goes, and I can't... Uh, verify this, but my understanding is that was raised by CIA, the importance of telling other stories, not just United States stories. So we wanted to focus on a universal story, and that is espionage that plays out in the shadows across the globe. And that's so important to our holdings. It's so important to, you know, responsibly engage on stories that that uh, relate to other countries, other nations. There's a universal sense, and you know that, of intelligence collection and preserving one's nation, preserving one's sovereignty. So we wanted to be bigger than just focus on U.S. intelligence.
0: Right. I mean, people say it's the world's second oldest profession, and nearly nearly every country in the world has some sort of intelligence collection and analysis operation.
1: That's exactly right. And I think it's important to tell those stories, in fact.
0: Chris, back to the new museum. The old museum focused almost exclusively on human, on human intelligence, on human spies. But you've taken a different approach in the new museum where you will have exhibits on many aspects of the intelligence process. was the thinking behind all of that?
1: So the thinking really relates to the learning that we've done in the last 17 years, and that's an important point. We've studied how people learn, technologies have changed, and we wanted to be more expansive and tell a broader story, which means we wanted to tell stories of analytical tradecraft. We wanted to have more experience expansive experiences, more immersive experiences. We have over 75 interactives. We want to not only educate, we want to inform, but we also want to do it in an entertaining way. We want people to have fun while they're learning. And uh, I think that's exactly what we do at the museum. But the idea is to be more expansive to talk about areas that we hadn't talked about previously so it t- talks really about the entire intelligence cycle and even though I'm very partial to human intelligence I think it's terrific that uh, we're giving people access to different stories and different disciplines
0: yeah I think it's terrific too because I think I think most people when they think of intelligence think of human spying because that's what we right. see in movies right But as you know, intelligence collection is much bigger than just human spies. Um, It involves a lot of different pieces. And then you have the whole analytic piece that sits on top of that. And then you've got covert action and paramilitary operations. So you've got – it is much more complicated than just human spies. So I really applaud what you've done here. Thank you very much. You're also focusing heavily on technology and science, right? Not only the small gadgets that humans use, right, to um, enable espionage, but also – large, sophisticated tools like satellites doing overhead reconnaissance, right? Why is that so important?
1: Well, I think it's important, again, to be more expansive, to tell the broader stories. And we have to keep up with technology, even though we're a museum and we have artifacts that date back hundreds, if not thousands of years. We, at the same time, we need to keep up with technology to tell the whole story. We have to talk about the SR-71s, overhead aircraft that flew throughout the the cold war and uh, i think that's an important part of what we do now we make sure that we cover not only technologies related to collection but we also are focusing on cyber in a very very innovative way how are you doing that well i don't want to give up too much yeah, of our yeah, secrets yeah, yeah, right yeah. but we're going to we're going to talk about some stories that i was rather surprised that we would tell malicious viruses for example if, affecting centrifuges. We have some artifacts from cyber attacks. And we'll also have a special room. And again, I don't want to spill the secrets. People about to get in trouble. come to the museum. They absolutely <laughs> will. But I promise that they'll not only enjoy what they see, but then they'll have an opportunity to participate in a role-playing game, for example. Uh, so I think that's really exciting. And that's about cyber. Yeah.
0: Chris, you also have features on what's called MAZINT, right. which is, for people who don't know, which is measurement and signature intelligence. And most people have never even heard of that term, right? So what role does Mazent play in intelligence collection? And what are some of the exhibits that you have that you can actually talk about at this point without people coming to visit?
1: <laughs> yeah. So uh, none of this is rehearsed. And I'm really glad you asked me that question because Mazent wasn't the top of my list for something that really excites me until I saw a story that we tell. And we tell the story of a laundromat. And I won't, again, spoil the whole story. But in that laundromat, it was really a cover facility so that military intelligence could collect up the laundry in a neighborhood. Why would they be interested in a laundry? Because they wanted to measure something. They wanted to measure explosive trace. Explosive residue left on clothing. That was brilliant, and it really to tell that story, to find that story to tell under the rubric of Mazen. And I've personally seen similar facilities set up in other places in the world to facilitate operations. So I was very excited about that story, and I didn't know it until I uh, rolled into the the Spy Museum in my current role.
0: When you enter the new museum, is there a is there a logic flow to how you walk through it?
1: Yeah, first of all, there is an excellent flow. We have more flow, and you refer to the museum on F Street. It's an amazing place. So the original museum the, on F Street. The original museum on F Street. We have much more greater flow I think Uh, based on that learning from the last 17 years we also learned how to move people how to let people have some space and you're going to see more space to pick and choose you might be interested in immersives or you might want to step back and spend time uh, watching the films or you can do all of that but there'll be more space but uh, two important points um, with the with the new museum what we do is focus first one whole floor on how you spy that's the tactics the techniques the procedures the tradecraft the gadgetry of espionage and that's exciting but the next floor will be why you spy and then we get into the, some of the moral dimensions of espionage again reinforced by artifacts and immersive experiences. But why does a nation spy? A totalitarian regime spies to protect its way of life, and a democracy functions to protect our way of life. Mm-hmm. And we'll juxtapose both of those environments in the museum. How much
0: more space do you have in the new museum compared to the old
1: So the building is about two times bigger than the previous museum. and. That gives us plenty of space to house 7,000 artifacts. Plus, we have world-class event space now. We have a full classroom. We have a theater. So we have things that we didn't have at F Street because of space constraints. We've outgrown our, our former space. And uh, we think that this building, first of all, it was purpose-built. It was purpose-built to execute our education mission. So with all that in mind, Mr. Maltz's vision, that's exactly what we're executing at L'Enfant Plaza.
0: So you have in the new museum, Chris, an exhibit on enhanced interrogation, what some people call torture, which is obviously a sensitive topic for many people. How did you guys go about thinking about the best way to present that sensitive issue?
1: So we recognized it was a sensitive issue, but what's important to note is we didn't shy away from telling a story that evokes a lot of emotion, right? So we wanted to tell that story, but we wanted to do it with the ethos of not only museum people, experts at curation, but also the way intelligence people operate, And what do we do? We provide facts and let others make their determination. We don't tell people what to think. So what we wanted to do is offer two viewpoints, a pro and an against, and we lay that out from experts from the intelligence community that were there when the decisions were made for enhanced interrogation. I feel as an intelligence professional, had we not told those stories, then we weren't being true to our ethos.
0: Absolutely. So
1: I'm pleased that we're doing that.
0: How did you think about making something like that accessible
1: to kids? So we have a first we have a warning. So parents are going to have to help us make a determination whether their kids should see what's within the uh, the exhibit within the gallery. And uh, I will say that I don't think it's terribly troubling but again eyes in the beholder in fact I think it's done very thoughtfully in fact even when we talk about things like terrorism and we have some artifacts I don't know if you've been for example at the nine eleven Memorial yes. Museum in New York it's so powerful yes. and full disclosure I couldn't stay in the museum for the it, you know for two hours it yeah. was just my wife couldn't either right I just it was, yep. I just had to leave everyone deals with it very differently so we thought through the artifacts that we have so we have some artifacts from 9-11 we have some artifacts from other terrorist attacks but we wanted to be thoughtful and we think we have we've we have found I think the right balance to tell those stories
0: Chris, your website for the new museum, which is terrific, by the way, and Thank it, you. It, it it's kind of a little bit spy-like and it, it really makes you want to visit. But on the website, you offer some themes about the new museum and they're discover, listen, uncover and test. And on the discover, it says, discover how real intelligence officers have changed history. So what are what are some of the stories that you tell about how intelligence has changed history or just? Maybe one of your favorites.
1: So I'll tell you one of my favorites. We like to say the British fought us very hard during the colonial times, but we outspied the British. So the network that George Washington, his direction, our first president before he was the president, he was a general in charge of the Continental Forces. He also oversaw a network of intelligencers, a network of collectors, and really early analysts. And we tell that story, the idea that an intelligence network became a force multiplier and resulted in our success against the British. So that's just one of many examples where intelligence really impacted on the history of a nation. And that's just our nation. We tell other stories. We tell the story of uh, an obscure Obscure story uh, that most Americans may not know the story of an attack against a a vessel in New Zealand, the Rainbow warrior yes, a covert thing. action executed by the French uh, to really disrupt protesters and then it was divulged to the to to the world frankly, and people were arrested, and an individual was killed. that changed literally the French government, so those are two examples, one international and one of course is very germane to the united states but it had repercussions throughout the yeah, world didn't it yeah.
0: i remember in um, in general washington's case that one of the first entries in the continental army's accounting books is a payment to a spy um, so was, secret funds yes, yes, right yes, yes, yes you know absolutely. your history well we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with chris costa do you hear that That's the sound of the world changing. Of networks connecting. Enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. So Chris, let's continue the discussion of these themes that are on your website. So the second one was that I mentioned was listen. And what it says on the website is listen to real spies tell real spy stories. So are there one or two of those that stand out to you?
1: Well, one of the stories I will tell is is my own personal story. And uh, I had to think long and hard. First of all, there's no manual when you leave Right. As an intelligence officer, you know that you can't violate trust. You sign non-disclosure agreements. At the same time, each one of us has to determine what are those stories that we can tell responsibly. So I had to come up with a whole series of stories. And I tell a story that has an excellent outcome. Without being a complete spoiler, I will tell you it's about battlefield human intelligence. And it's really representative of intelligence that took place post 9-11 in Iraq and Afghanistan. And there's stories that we didn't tell on F Street at the previous museum because it was too early in time. But I tell a story about Afghanistan uh, regarding a walk-in, somebody that wanted to volunteer intelligence information, a former Taliban. And as a result of that, it had excellent outcome. That's one of those stories we tell. Of course, it's more dramatic mm-hmm. in my telling real spies, real stories. But we go to real intelligence officers, and I think they're compelling stories. And we've refreshed those stories from what we told uh, in the past.
0: And and, and and are these on a video screen? Or yeah. Are they
1: audio? Or how does that excellent work? Excellent question. It's filmed. It's filmed, and uh, it's in the spies own words uh, and from multiple agencies telling their stories. And that's just one small theater of many filmings that we have at the museum.
0: The next on the list is Uncover, and it says Uncover the Tradecraft and Tools of the Trade of Intelligence. Are there a couple of items that you're most proud of?
1: Well, I, in particular, I really like The fact that we have a tool that was used for assassination against Trotsky, and it was used, and it's part of lethal action, where the Soviets killed Trotsky, uh, who was in hiding in Mexico City, and uh, they dispatched assassins to kill him, and he was killed quite brutally, but we have that literal artifact of an ice axe.
0: The very very tool or... uh one like it
1: no it is the very tool tool. and that was acquired by h keith melton and the story behind how he got it is one for the spy books candidly i mean uh, to hear his telling it was much like any other spy operation to authenticate that uh, device to make sure he had what was actually used in that killing as gruesome as it sounds it's an important part of history and when you compare it and you contextualize what's happening currently, uh, attempted poisonings in the U.K. by um, Russian intelligence. It it kind of never ends, right? It, it, it doesn't just, it end, right? It just goes on and on. And that's why it's so important to have the context so that people can make those connections from current events yeah. to events that so happened in the past. So if you want to past. know
0: exactly what this tool was and exactly how it was used to kill Trotsky, you've got to go to the museum.
1: And yes. <laughs> right. You have to see it to believe it, right?
0: The last theme on your list on the website is test. And 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 this I find really interesting. Test your skills as an intelligence officer. What kind of ways will visitors be able to
1: do that? Well, in our analytical gallery, which I think is amazing in its ability to test people on things like cognitive bias. Imagine that. And at the same time, we culminate by talking about the Bin Laden raid, and and you know a lot about the Bin Laden raid. In fact, I have to tell you a very, very quick story as it relates to how we test people in red teaming, where guests will have an opportunity to test themselves on the information that CIA and the rest of the intelligence community had. And you are part of that storytelling. And I want to share.
0: I kind of walk That's right. folks through that. right? And
1: people will have an ability to test themselves, not only on what really happened, but on the intelligence that they weren't aware of, perhaps. And that will come to life. And I will tell you, we unveiled that for a, a group of businessmen last week, a behind-the-scenes view. And I will tell you, our president said to make sure I tell you this story, Tamara Christian, she said there was a uh, clapping uh, by the audience when that occurred. And we didn't expect that. And that doesn't happen every day in a spy museum. And the last thing, I I just, uh, to go to your question, if I could, we have an RFID. And that's an example of radio frequency identification. So all these interactives you'll have feedback when you leave. It'll be around your neck. You can opt in and you're going to get feedback. Hey, maybe I have an aptitude for being an analyst or maybe since I showed no fear, Mm -hmm. then maybe I'd make a great covert action operator or perhaps a case officer.
0: Chris, I want to switch gears a bit because I didn't want to miss the opportunity to talk a bit about your career. Because you were an intelligence officer. Uh, You were in this business, right? You spent two decades as an Army counterintelligence specialist, six years mentoring Navy SEALs, and just over a year on the National Security Council staff. Maybe the place to start is, what does it mean to be a counterintelligence specialist in the Army? What did you do every day, at least to the extent you can talk about it?
1: So my career... My first deployment as a counterintelligence agent was to Operation Just Cause in Panama. In that case, it was an opportunity to screen the population, to conduct interrogations and interviews, to separate the wheat from the chaff, as they say. And that was my formative experience as a counterintelligence agent. After that, I went to a special forces group. And after serving in a special forces group, I decided... I wanted to become eventually a case officer, which I did become. I went through all the appropriate schooling. But my foundation was first to be a counterintelligence agent, to see the enemy through my adversary's eyes, right, to understand how they think, how they operate against us. That was an incredible tool to be able to do it first in a combat environment and then to do it on the streets of Europe as a counterintelligence agent um, in the in the final days of the Cold War. So I was exposed to the the cobblestone streets, the intrigues that went on in Europe. In some cases, we were, we were burned against the very adversaries that we talk about in the International Spy Museum, like the East Germans in some cases. But that gave me a strong foundation to then do human work. And I decided I wanted to spend my time as a career human officer working in special operations and that's what I did throughout the 1990s in places like Bosnia which in hindsight became almost a dress rehearsal for what we did post 9-11 with special operations and then after 9-11 I spent all my time operationally deployed to Afghanistan in Iraq. So Chris I just
0: want to make clear to our listeners so intelligence is when we collect intelligence on our adversaries. Counterintelligence is preventing them from being able to do that to us. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. To to detect, to deny, to deter hostile intelligence services from foiling our operations, becoming a spoiler. And that's the role of a counterintelligence officer, not only to protect your operations, but also to disrupt the adversary's ability to, you know, attack us using the intelligence discipline as a tool. Yeah.
0: So you said earlier uh, that in Afghanistan, that, and you actually do this, right, at the new museum, that you learned about the value of human operations and supporting special operations. Yes. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, I think my experience post 9-11 was to take all of that learning and uh, to essentially build networks of indigenous sources that provided um, an indigenous reconnaissance and surveillance capability, for example, and in some cases would provide targeting information so we could go after our targets on the battlefield. And that really happened by recruiting sources. So it's no different from operating in a nation's capital. All the principles apply, but it's done in a tactical situation. But you have to spot... You have to assess. You have to build a relationship, and ultimately, you have to recruit somebody to pro- provide information on the network that we wanted information on. In some cases, we were going after Al Qaeda facilitators. In some cases, we were contributing, in in hindsight, in in small to to. Uh, larger ways and filling in some of the gaps on on bin Laden. But the trail eventually, as you know, went cold, at least in Afghanistan. But we all work toward those goals. Um, So it was a tremendous experience. And
0: how how do you do that job of spotting, assessing, developing, recruiting in a war zone, right? Where... It's dangerous to go outside the wire.
1: How does that work? So that's an excellent question, and I like to compare it to my predecessor, uh, an intrepid case officer that uh, my predecessor at the spy museum, Peter Ernest. He did some of his operations wearing a tuxedo. And as I reflected on that before I went to the spy museum, I thought, geez, I've never done anything in a tuxedo operationally. But then I realized our mission was the same. When he went to a cocktail party in a nation's capital, I went to the field to go to see multiple tribal leaders. I went from tribe to tribe, village to village, and not working a cocktail circuit but literally building relationship with tribal leaders but ultimately my goal was to peel away some of those individuals and build a relationship with them ultimately recruit some of them to provide intelligence so the s- same principles apply it, except for we didn't wear tuxedos we had yeah. carried grenades and, yeah, yeah. and, had, and side had security arms. that's right
0: security right right um had had some guys with guns with you That human support to special operations I know um, from experience, you can see immediately the result of your work, right? It's very satisfying. It's not writing an analytic product and you don't know what impact it has at the end. You actually see the impact in a very short period of time. Isn't that right?
1: No, that's exactly right. It's very gratifying. I mean, the story I tell at the International Spy Museum, my story is about saving lives so it had a very good outcome not all stories ended like that but uh, you've got to uh, appreciate and be gratified that you did something that was tangible on a battlefield and it takes years in some cases foreign intelligence to produce something that someone walks away feeling that gratified but it happens
0: Chris so you're not only a former intelligence officer counterintelligence officer case officer and now executive director of a museum, you're also a bit of a, I wouldn't say a bit of, you're a counterterrorism expert. I've heard you talk about it, and you really are an expert. So I want to ask you a couple questions about that. So when you were at the NSC, you worked on President Trump's counterterrorism strategy, which, by the way, ended up pretty much like Bush's counterterrorism strategy and Obama's counterterrorism strategy when I looked at it. What was that process like? Was Was it straightforward based on intelligence analysis and policy analysis? Did politics creep into it? What was that process like?
1: So that's a great question. So first, I have to tell you that uh, the foundation for the work that we did came from intelligence professionals on my team from across the The intelligence field and policymakers as well and special operators all part of a counterterrorism team and there was a staying arc of continuity between administrations on counterterrorism and what we did what I tried to do is is to incessantly protect our guys from politicization to make sure I was well informed by intelligence the one advantage I had the one advantage I had was having a lot of experience as an intelligence officer, I knew the questions I could ask the analysts, the PDB briefers, the presidential daily briefers that I had the luxury of hearing from every day, ask them the right questions. And I knew how to leverage intelligence. So despite worries of politicization, I will tell you that our team built a framework for an excellent counterterrorism strategy and it wasn't finished while I was there and I am grateful that it wasn't finished now I wanted it done while I was there but in the end it was a better product because the debates continued and there were some impasses based on very nuanced wording and philosophies but at the end of the day when I left the team continued working on that strategy and frankly I believe it's the best strategy the nation's ever had the framework is for counterterrorism and uh, it needed to be updating. But make no mistake, I think there's a continuity that goes back pre nine yes. eleven. Yes. on yes, working yes. counterterrorism. Yes.
0: And a question about ISIS. So it's now lost all of its territory. It's lost its caliphate, right, um, in Iraq and Syria. And people see that as a good thing. What's your view on where the threat from ISIS stands today?
1: So I think ISIS is... Still And remains a threat. Not having a physical caliphate is a good thing. We took away their, their call. We took away a, a golden dream, if you will. But what that leaves us with is an underground and it's harder to get at our adversaries. So they're going to be underground and they're going to continue their planning. But make no mistakes, the fact that we've taken away that rallying call to a physical caliphate is a good thing. And they're on their heels, but in time what's going to happen into your question is they're going to rebuild. They're going to coalesce around some other some other ideas on what it means to be a terrorist organization but there's going to be some reincarnation you oh, know by the way al-qaeda has quietly and patiently watched right and no one knows al-qaeda better than you do right, but they've right. been very patient right. isis stuck up their head and they paid a price for it but al-qaeda has quietly and patiently watched that play out
0: what's the greatest terrorism threat that you see to the nation today
1: So I think it's still terrorists getting access to nuclear materials. I worry a lot about that, the loose nuke scenario, the idea that a dirty bomb can, um, can detonate. You know, early on in the administration, we were very, very concerned about the threat to commercial aviation. That also is mass destruction and aircraft right. going right. down.
0: And boy, they keep, they keep on coming back to that, don't they?
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: Chris, you've been great with your time. I just really want to ask one more question. One of the people you work with at the museum is Jonna Mendez, right? a former CIA officer herself and the wife of the legendary Tony Mendez, um, who passed away in January and who was memorialized in the film Argo. Both of them were known to have been gifted in the art
1: of disguise. What did you learn working with them? Well, first of all, Jonna... Is tremendous and Tony has a rich, rich legacy. Both of them, in their own rights, are tremendous giants in this business. What I learned, it goes back to what this business demands, and that is a quiet professionalism and a humility. They learned the art of storytelling and they did so with a tremendous amount of humility, and we should all aspire to do that. I know. I aspire to be a better storyteller. And as I told Jonna recently, I'm so touched by, by the loss of Tony. But people like me and following generations, they have somebody to look to. And there are lots of figures in the business. And there are many we don't know that aren't advertised. And I know some of those people. But Jonna and Tony, they're very special because they operated as a, as a unique pair, didn't they? Yeah, they sure did.
0: Chris, thank you for your time today. The new museum sounds fantastic. I can't wait to see it. And um, if my listeners are in Washington, D.C., go see it as soon as it opens. And if you're not in D.C., then get yourself to D.C. to see it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was Chris Costa. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.